Well, good morning, everyone, on this uh, crisp, cool September 21st morning. My name is JB with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my uh, humble studio beneath the sky, tucked away here in an undisclosed location beneath the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as I mentioned, it is Thursday, September 21st, 2023. Time for uh, the latest issue of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. Thanks for your patience. It's been over two weeks since our last installment of this uh, Q&A podcast. Uh, I have, as I think you know, if you've been following our podcast and ministry, been traveling and uh, dealing with uh, the demands of ministry here at NBW. Uh, but I wanted to get another episode out this week, and uh, you've sent in some great questions. I'm really Really eager to, to dive into this one today. Got some really good questions and, you know, some that are uh, pretty straightforward, uh, easy to answer, and others that uh, will require a little bit more uh, time. But as always, I hope it's beneficial uh, to you as well. If you sent in a question, uh, we usually email you after these podcasts are posted uh, so that you can uh, be aware that we've answered your question in this particular episode. But as always, thanks for your for your patience there. A couple of quick announcements. Great news on the new book. We did get word that our shipment is on the way, and we will begin uh, fulfilling orders and sending you your packages uh, first thing uh, Monday, uh, or to probably bleed over into Tuesday as well uh, next week. So right on schedule as promised. I know we've received a few emails from folks uh, wondering uh, about the status of their order, but if you recall, when the books went on sale first in a private Notice to all of our email subscribers, August 30th, and then to the general public on September 1st, uh, we made uh, made it clear that the books would ship uh, on or about September the 25th. And so that's Monday and right on schedule. But thanks for your patience. I know it's been, uh, you know, a while for some of you. If you ordered it right away, you've been waiting three weeks, but we knew that was the case. That's why we indicated the September 25th uh, ship date. But good news, they are on the way. Everyone should start getting their packages uh, by the end of next week. Uh, we're going to ship them out fast and furious uh, first thing as soon as we get our order next uh, week. So pray for us. We've got a whole stack of folks that have been uh, waiting for their order. We went ahead and tried to do everything we can to make the process uh, go quickly once we receive our inventory. We've printed out the uh, labels for the packages. We've got all the uh, packaging info ready to go. And so uh, uh, just pray for us as those books begin to go out. Uh, for the longest time, we've had a practice of, uh, or at least I have, uh, in the early days of this ministry. And and uh, every time I do packages now, uh, I do the same thing. And that is we pray over every package that goes out. Uh, just a quick prayer as I'm packaging them up and putting them in the bins for the post office. Uh, we get quite a few orders every day, even before the new book, and we put a gospel track in every order, and we just pray that the Lord will will use it. We never know what, whose hands it will end up in. It could be opened by an unbelieving spouse of someone who placed the order, or it could be passed on to someone as a gift. And so uh, we assume that most of our listeners are probably believers, but uh, we also know that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And and as it goes forth, we we want it to, to do its job and convict people of their, uh, let the Holy Spirit convict them of the truth of the gospel and of their need for a, a Savior. So I pray for that. And, and again, if you're waiting on your book, thanks for your patience. They will go out right on schedule uh, next week. Well, it's been... Um, 
a great week so far here at NBW Ministries. We've we've posted a few of uh, my messages from the conference this past weekend in Fort Collins. On Monday, we posted Spirit of the False Prophet Hacking and Tracking Humanity, which draws from one of the chapters in the new book. On Tuesday, we posted Transhumanism and the Gender Surrender Movement. That was a powerful episode. I hope you'll take the time to watch that. And then uh, those were both videos as well as audio podcasts. And then, of course, uh, yesterday we had Randy on for our World Events update. And thanks for the encouraging emails we got about that. It's always great to, to talk with Randy. He and I just enjoy it uh, beyond, more than you, you can imagine. We don't even remember we're being uh, recorded. We're just having a conversation and uh, appreciate his input. Uh, tomorrow on Friday, we'll have Shane back on. We're going to talk about the hidden dangers of AI, things you might not have thought about. And Shane's always got a, a list of uh, four or five, sometimes more news items that are breaking news within the realm of technology. So we're certainly looking forward to that. So again, uh, before we jump in here to the first question, if you're interested in the book or want to learn more about the book, or you want to uh, send the info to other people so they can kind of uh, see what this uh, Spirit of the False Prophet book is all about, you can direct them to spiritofthefalseprophet.org spiritofthefalseprophet.org. The full table of contents is listed there, including the subsections of each chapter. You can get a real good sense for what's uh, going on with the book and, and what it's about. The full title is Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. And we're talking all about the role of AI and technology in the coming full-spectrum planetary control grid. Uh, so with that, let's jump in here. Again, uh, we have uh, quite a few good uh, questions. We'll get to as many of them uh, as we can. The first question is uh, about the uh, state of affairs in the world today. And this person had uh, sent a, a video and referenced uh, some passages from the trumpet judgments section of Revelation in Revelation chapter uh, 8. And uh, their question is, do you think this is a preview of the tri tribulation? And so I'm going to take the opportunity with this question to kind of give you some general uh, information about the, the the setting of the stage. So uh, we believe the rapture is the next great uh, prophetic event on God's calendar, uh, but there are many, many things happening right now with prophetic significance setting the stage for all of the end times events. Remember, the end times that constitutes uh, everything that starts at the rapture and happens after that. All of these end times events like the tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist and false prophet and the abomination of desolation and the two witnesses and the battle of Armageddon and the return of Christ triumphant to establish his uh, millennial reign and the thousand year millennial reign and so many other pieces of prophecy that have yet to be fulfilled. That's the end times. And so as we see things developing in the world today that appear to be related to or setting the stage for those future events, it's just an indication that we're getting closer and closer to the end of the age. In fact, the disciples asked that question uh, one time uh, related to the second coming and the, the coming of the kingdom. They wanted to know, hey, what will be the sign of your coming? And in that case, he gave them a, a detailed description of the events that will take place during the seven-year tribulation. Uh, that's found in Matthew 24 and 25, and also in Luke 21 and Mark 13. Uh, it's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus preached it from atop uh, the Mount of Olives. And uh, so, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, uncommon to ask for signs. The disciples did it. We do it. Uh, the difference is the signs that we're seeing are not signs for the rapture because the rapture is a signless event. It's imminent, meaning it could happen at any time. Uh, but uh, they are signs 
for future things that will happen after the tribulation. And if we see things kind of happening on earth that are preparing the way for those types of things, like the rise of the Antichrist, a planetary global surveillance grid, uh, one world currency, one world government, cashless society, those types of things, then we know that the rapture must be even closer because it has to happen before those things. And speaking of the Olivet Discourse, uh, we had another question specifically about that. Someone wanted to know my take on Matthew 24, 32 to 35, and I've addressed this uh, quite often. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, the Olivet Discourse as a whole. Uh, but before I get specifically to those verses, just to close the loop on that first question, yes, the things that we're seeing now are, you might say, are a, quote, preview of the tribulation in a manner of speaking, uh, because they are setting the stage for what's going to happen when uh, the Antichrist uh, takes the realm with his sidekick, the false prophet that I talk about in the new book. So let me read Matthew 24, 32 to 35, and then give you a quick uh, explanation of this passage. This comes at the end of Jesus' you know, opening section of the Olivet Discourse, when he gives all of the detailed signs related to his coming. And then he says, now learn this. In other words, let me kind of give you a, a practical admonition in light of the, the information that I just gave you. So Jesus is the consummate preacher. He always gives information, but he also gives exhortation. He, like any good preacher, answers the so what question, what do I do with this information? And he closes out with this parable. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, you know that it is near at the doors, meaning my return. Remember, that's the question the disciples asked. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They they kind of had a, three questions all wrapped up in one there. I've talked about that elsewhere, that that was kind of almost an ecstatic utterance. They just were so taken aback by the fact that Jesus said the temple will be destroyed. They didn't see how that could fit with their timeline. Their timeline was that Jesus was moments away from establishing his kingdom and 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 bringing down the Roman Empire, uh, but he he says no, the temple is going to be destroyed, and so they rather excitedly say, well then, what will be the sign of your coming, and 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 when will these things be, and and what what will be the sign of your coming, and 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 the end of the age, and so forth. All of it really is essentially is focused in on one question, and so that's what Jesus means. He says. Uh, all these things that I've just described for you in 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 answering your question, when you see them, then you know my my return uh, is near. Uh, in the same way that when you see uh, a fig tree become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And then he makes this statement that uh, many people have misunderstood, but hopefully now that I've given you the context, it it, it should be crystal clear. He says, assuredly, this is verse 34, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Well, what generation? Not the generation to whom he's speaking, that's clear enough, but the generation about whom he's seeking, the, speaking, the one that sees the signs. So again, remember, let me, let me read the whole verse to, with, with, for continuity, the whole passage. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near, my return, at the doors. So surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So who is the you there? The you is the ones who see the signs. 
He says, when you also, when you see these things. Well, the disciples did not see any of those things. Certainly they didn't see Jesus Christ coming in the clouds with the sound of a great trumpet and gathering the nation of Israel back into the homeland, as he mentions in verse 31. Certainly we didn't see a cosmic a global sign like the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and stars falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens being shaken. Certainly, we never saw the sign of the Son of Man appearing in heaven. We never saw all the tribes of the earth mourning. We certainly didn't see the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple and des desecrates it and demands that everybody worship him. We didn't see any of the signs that are described in the preceding verses. So uh, what throws people is they take Matthew 24, 34 out of context, and they say, oh, well, this generation must mean the one he's talking to, but uh, not at all. It's, it's a generation about whom he's talking, the one that sees the signs. And this is very common throughout prophecy. G the prophets of old, and even in the first century, often give a prophecy to a particular people, uh, even though they won't see the fulfillment of it, they're just the recipients of the revelation of the prophecy. Paul told the church in Thessalonica about the rapture, but they didn't get to experience the rapture. Uh, Isaiah told the people of his day about the virgin birth, but they didn't see Mary give birth to the Christ child. So prophecy always is given in a historical context but is fulfilled in a later context. And so clearly in this passage, he's talking about the generation that sees all these signs that I've just mentioned to you will be the generation that sees my coming. So hopefully that helps uh, clarify that question about the Olivet Discourse. Here's a question about Bilderberg. Great question. I loved this email. I wish I had time uh, to respond directly to it, but it was just easier to put it on the, the stack of stuff here for these, uh, these Q&A podcasts. But the person basically says, is asking, what's the connection between the Bilderberg group, which I discuss in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, as part of one of the, the secret power brokers and power groups, and the Bilderberg family and, and heritage? Well, the Bilderberg group, that name comes from the Bilderberg Hotel, where they uh, first met. I think it was in the Netherlands, if I remember right. I, don't quote me on that. I don't have it right. Uh, in front of me. Uh, but that was the name of the hotel, the Hotel de Bilderberg. And so that's why it got its name. Now, they meet in different places now uh, throughout uh, the, the world. Um, and that hotel presumably was named after the Bilderberg family. But that does not mean that the Bilderberg family today has any connection to the Luciferians that meet at the Bilderberg Hotel. So hopefully that uh, clears that up. Uh, here is another question. Uh, I think I've answered these types of questions before, but I never get tired of it because it's about the purity of the gospel, the clarity and accuracy of the gospel. So this person mentions a few examples of gospel presentations that uh, she has heard in various uh, contexts online, videos and conferences maybe, and, and podcasts and so forth. She mentions a couple of names that I won't mention, but as a good Berean, she notices that these people uh, in their particular gospel presentations uh, seem to be adding works to the gospels, particularly suggesting that a person, in order to really be saved, uh, has to bear fruit and, and turn their life around and repent of all their sins and promise to forsake all their sins and make um, several other types of bilateral commitments to God if you really want to get to heaven. But uh, that is not true. That is a false gospel. And uh, anybody today who 
all they have ever believed, and listen carefully to, to my wording on this, if all a person has ever believed in order to get to heaven is that they must you know, believe and turn their life around and promise to be good, that's not salvific. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is exclusive faith apart from any works. And, and the Bible makes this very, very clear again and again and again. We're saved by grace through faith. Grace, by definition, is a free gift. So if you come to Christ uh, believing in him, but at the same time thinking that you must pledge allegiance to him if you're really going to go to heaven, uh, that's that kind of excludes the exclusivity of Christ, if you will. And so, uh, but I do believe most people today who are under the false impression that you know you, you have to be good to get to heaven or produce good fruit or somehow if you're sinning a lot then you're not really saved if they if they elevate works to that level of instrumentality in their eternal destiny i think they probably are still saved because my assumption is that somewhere along their journey they in simple childlike faith believed the pure and simple gospel that christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and then as they've listened to teachers and so forth they've gotten you know gotten misled and begin to develop a an inaccurate view of salvation but all it takes is one time moment in time in that instantaneous moment when faith meets the gospel and you realize that you're a sinner and you need a savior and that it's a free gift and so you cry out to Christ lord i know i'm a sinner i can't save myself and i'm trusting in you today to forgive my sin and give me the gift of eternal life and in that instant we're saved the minute faith meets the gospel eternal life is the guaranteed result. And so back to these people that this uh, person is referencing, um, uh, and, and they the person that wrote the email mentioned the same thing. They're not necessarily questioning the salvation of these people that are articulating a an inaccurate gospel. They're just uh, wondering about the, the actual, uh, you know, uh, irreducible minimum, so to speak. What precisely must someone believe about Jesus to have eternal life? And that, by the way, was the subject of my very first book, uh, 20 years ago now, uh, it was called Getting the Gospel Wrong. It actually started out uh, as my PhD dissertation when I was in academia. And then after the after I uh, published the dissertation and received my degree, then we went on later and made it into a, a more reader-friendly book. So I encourage you to check that book out. Uh, uh, it's still one of our bestsellers to this day, Getting the Gospel Wrong, The Evangelical Crisis No One Is Talking About. And it talks quite clearly in there about how you can prove exegetically that salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it. It does not come down to a promise or pledge to God. The strength of our you know, eternal life does not rest upon our ability to do good or promise to do good. It's on our recognition that we can't do good, and only Jesus can save us. And then uh, absolutely, once a person is saved, the normal natural result of the new life in Christ is godliness. But it should be both self-evident and biblically clear that that's not guaranteed. There are many examples in Scripture of believers who continue to cater to the flesh and don't live a godly life. And in fact, that's the reason there's so many exhortations in the New Testament for believers in the present age to yield to the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, and walk by faith and not by sight, and to be holy as He is holy. If it, if our godliness was guaranteed the moment we got saved, there wouldn't be any need for the Bible to challenge us to do that. But it's precisely because that old man still rears his ugly head, and we can uh, sadly produce ungodliness as Christians that we need to uh, heed the, the Bible's exhortation toward 
progressive sanctification and 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 be walking by faith and walking in the spirit and growing in our faith. So uh, unfortunately, godliness is not guaranteed. It is normal. It is natural. Any believer that's not living a godly life is unhealthy and is going to face all kinds of natural consequences from that, as well as the discipline of a loving father. But our eternal destiny is not contingent upon our ability to produce fruit. As I've said many times, an orange tree is still an orange tree, even if it never produces an orange. And there are plenty of examples, any horticulturist will tell you this, of unhealthy plants that don't produce the kind of fruit they're supposed to produce. So they're not effective. They're not uh, normal. They're not natural. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they are still you know, an orange tree or an apple tree, whatever it might be. So uh, certainly not defending here those who uh, live a profligate lifestyle as believers, but uh, we need to understand that grace and works do not mix. And a lot of people try to bring works in through the back door and say, well, you don't have to do good works to be saved, but boy, if you're not doing good works, you were never saved to begin with. Well, either way, that makes good works the determining factor of whether you go to heaven or not. And that's simply uh, a direct violation of, of Scripture. So I hope that helps clarify your question. As for those that are teaching that, I want to be gracious because, you know, I just feel like there's kind of two classes of people that teach this works-based uh, type of salvation. On the one hand, you've got the the hardcore Calvinists who absolutely believe theologically that you have to do good works, you have to persevere in good works all the way till you die or you're never going to get to heaven. And, and they are really passionate about it. And that's, those are the ones that bother me the most because they are dead wrong and emphatically and dogmatically so, and they're leading others astray. But then there's another camp of people that I consider just sort of maybe sloppy, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean they they have not really thought through the clarity of the gospel as they should, and so they're using unclear terminology to articulate the gospel. And I have more grace and patience toward those people because I was there. Uh, you know, most of my early days before I went to uh, seminary in my early 20s, I grew up in a Christian church, and I never really thought through the clarity of the gospel. And so I was using phrases like, commit your life to Christ, and invite Jesus into your heart, and surrender your life to Jesus, and make him Lord of your life, and put him on the throne of your life. Every one of those things I just said is unbiblical. The Bible never says any of those things. What the Bible says you have to do to be saved is to believe. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. And so uh, I think when 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 a lot of these people that are using unclear terminology, when you really sit down and have a good-natured discussion with them and open your Bible and begin to compare Scripture with Scripture, a lot of times they'll go, oh, yeah, you know what? That's true. And and by God's grace, over the 35 years of ministry, and particularly since we started Not By Works Ministries in 1999, we've had the opportunity to, to have those discussions hundreds of times. And we've seen uh, people, kind of the light bulb go off, and people realize, you know what, I wasn't as clear as I should be. So thankfully, uh, we serve a great God who can hit a home run with a crooked stick. And, and even when we are not clear in our articulation of the gospel. Somehow the Holy Spirit can fix it, and and the, the simple, pure gospel message cuts right to the heart, and people can be saved. But that does not mean, and it, nor does it excuse us uh, from the uh, requirement of, of being clear. So I hope these people that this particular emailer is talking about will realize that they need to be more clear as they articulate the gospel. Uh, the next question here is about uh, Yuval Noah Harari. And um, 
just a general question here about his Jewish background and how he's blinded and he's blinding him blind to his own demise and blinding others. Um, and uh, they make the comment that they feel like Harari and Klaus Schwab are very low on the totem pole, so to speak. I'm paraphrasing uh, here. Uh, I'm not sure I agree. I, I think they're both pretty, pretty front and center. I, I certainly don't think they're at the top level of Luciferians, the Luciferian families that are communicating with Satan and getting the marching orders for the Luciferian conspiracy. But they're pretty high up, Harari and Schwab, that is. And uh, in the new book, I have an entire chapter focused on Yuval Noah Harari. I believe it's chapter five. I call him a wolf in wolf's clothing and get into some uh, pretty uh, interesting background information on his upbringing and uh, th those types of uh, types of things. So that's my take on Harari. Uh, the next question here is, um, let's see, Christians are suddenly taken home. The Christians, oh, I, they're talking here about the, the UFO uh, craze right now, and they quote a few uh, preachers. Um, and uh, about you know that are and, and a few videos and so forth about different breaking news about the UFOs, um, and they talk about they ask about will this be something the Antichrist will use as a deception to explain uh, the rapture? In other words, are they going after the rapture? Are they going to say that aliens abducted Christians and that's what happened to them? I think it seems clear that's what's what's happening is there that that they're going to use that, but I want to be clear that I believe the UFO phenomena, as I discuss at length in chapters 9 and 10 of Spirit of the Antichrist, volume 2, I believe it is demonic. I don't think it's something they're making up and lying about. It's been going on in earnest since 1947. As I've mentioned, I believe that's because the, the Satan saw the uh, formation of Israel as a nation state again in 1948. He saw that the beginnings of it and things were starting to come together post-World War II, and so he realized, therefore, that God must be shifting into the end game or the last days, that the last of the last days in preparation for the end times. And so I believe he ratcheted up his reconnaissance missions from all of his evil celestial beings. And and so that's why I see we're, believe we're seeing an upsurge in all of this activity for the last 70 plus years. And it is happening everywhere. And I think it's real. I think it's demonic. I think it's dimensional. And I think it's real. Certainly, there's always going to be, you know, those hoaxers out there, and not every single report of a UFO is legitimate. Uh, but by and large, I think it's born out of a an upsurge in paranormal activity that we see not only in the UFO phenomena, but all around us. I mean, I, I talk about that in the in Spirit of the Antichrist Volume Two. We see it with just in in all kinds of ways, and I won't go into all of those, but with the cryptids and with um, just paranormal activity in general, I believe that's a sign of the times. I think we're getting ready for all of those cosmic signs. You know, as has often been said, when the rapture happens, everything from that point on is going to be far more paranormal and supernatural. The paranormal is going to become the normal. The supernatural is going to become the natural. And that first three and a half years of the tribulation uh, is just going to be, a, you know, a, a change in, in the way the world works. And really even before that, after the rapture, but before the Antichrist signs the treaty. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that that they're going to use this demonic activity as a a lie to explain the rapture, but but that the UFO activity is not in and of itself a lie. It's really happening. It's just not little green men from Mars. It is demonic 
activity. So hopefully that helps clarify that. Then this question, speaking of paranormal activity, is about downloads. What are downloads? Certain people in the New Age religion and mystical religions claim to be getting downloads. In fact, uh, I, I talk uh, in that same section of Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, about Alice, or actually it's in uh, it's in the chapter on the Luciferian timeline. I talk about Alice Bailey, uh, back in the 30s, was a uh, theosophist, a Satan worshiper, and she was a disciple of Helena Blavatsky. And I talk about how she claims to have channeled the demon Master DK to write 10,000 pages, in which, by the way, the demon supposedly told her that 2025, this was back in the 1930s, remember, but that 2025 was going to be a key a year in the in the Satan's attempt to take over the world. So uh, I, I think that's what downloads are referring to. I'm certainly not an expert on the New Age religion, but uh, I have studied it at the highest levels uh, in my PhD in systematic theology, and have had the occasion to talk with some people that are have come have come out of the New Age religion. Um, but my understanding is downloads basically is another word for channeling. It's just getting satanic. Uh, you know, information. And as this questioner mentions, it really is a form of divination in a sense. Uh, okay, here's a question about Revelation. And they said, the church is not spoken of after chapter four in the book of Revelation. In the Revelation timeline, are we in chapters one to three yet? Uh, no, not exactly. So chapters one to three of Revelation contain seven letters to seven literal historic churches. Um, and uh, that were in existence uh, in at the end of uh, the first century. Uh, so some Bible scholars try to make some allegorical references there and see each of the seven churches as representing a different era in church history. Uh, that's kind of fascinating. It's kind of interesting. There are some uh, striking parallels there, but the text itself never says that those passages are to be taken that way. So I, I think it's best to to let the text say what it says. And so the, the, these are letters to each of these churches, giving them commendation and rebuke and those types of things. So, uh, you know, then chapter four and following is all about setting the stage for the tribulation and a description of the tribulation. Uh, chapter 19, Christ comes back at the end of the seven years. And uh, chapter 20 is the kingdom, the millennial phase of the kingdom. Chapter 21 and 22 is the eternal state and the eternal phase of uh, the kingdom. But everything, as this writer, as this questioner says, is converging to prepare the way uh, for the tribulation. They also mentioned, I sent your books to uh, books one and two to my family. We are excited to receive copies of the newest book as well. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate the encouragement. Please spread the word. I really have this sense of uh, just heaviness that we're getting closer and closer and closer, and we need to get this information out as fast as possible. And as I mentioned at the outset, the new book is scheduled to, we're scheduled to start shipping the orders uh, early next week, Monday and Tuesday. So thanks for your patience, those of you that jumped right on it and ordered it the minute it went on sale. But as we've said all along, uh, we would not be shipping the books till September 25th at the latest. And we hoped to have them out a few days earlier, but unfortunately our, our uh, printer, uh, the ones who provided the inventory, uh, was not able to get them to us any quicker than uh, they had said. So anyway, right on schedule for next week. Can't wait to start hearing some of your feedback as you uh, as you guys read the book. By the way, if you like the new book, once you get it, uh, let me know. If, if you don't like it, don't let me know. <laughs> I don't know if my heart could take it. So uh, all right, here's a question about uh, the fullness of the Gentiles. 
And uh, they wanted me to clarify again. They they said that I had mentioned this in a previous podcast, but they'd like to get a little bit more uh, clarification. So the key passage here is Romans 11.25, where Paul says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the context in Romans chapters 9 through 11, all three chapters, is about the future for national Israel. Uh, Paul is essentially answering the question, has God forsaken Israel and replaced Israel with the church? And the emphatic answer is absolutely not. He says, no, there's absolutely a future for Israel, that one day the the Messiah is going to come out of Israel and 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 usher in the kingdom, and you know that Israel definitely will be delivered into her kingdom someday, but not until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And the fullness of the Gentiles there is parallel to Jesus' statement in Luke about the times of uh, the Gentiles. And so the times of the Gentiles refer to that period of time in uh, human history when Israel and the nation in the, in the city of Jerusalem is under siege and under the control of Gentiles, just as it is today. And that will not cease until Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation. So the times of the Gentiles goes all the way through to the end of the tribulation when until Christ comes back. It's not a synonym for the church age. The church age, of course, began in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD, and it will end at the rapture. And then after the rapture, you've got a whole lot of prophecy that takes place, including the seven-year tribulation. And then at the end of that 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year tribulation, uh, that's when we will see uh, the times the Gentiles come to an end because Israel will once again have her king and will be the the, the world capital and the kingdom will emanate from uh, the rebuilt temple there in uh, Jerusalem. So, um, and then this person follows up with a question about uh, the olive tree. In that same chapter, Romans 11, it talks about how in the present day, Gentiles are grafted into the olive tree. The olive tree there doesn't represent Israel the way replacement theologians suggest. It can't represent Israel uh, because the text says that someday God will graft Israel again into their own olive tree. So they can't be the olive tree and own the olive tree or have the olive tree or be grafted in. They can't be grafted into themselves, in other words. The olive tree represents the place of God's blessing. And currently, or back, you know, in the before the church age, Israel occupied center stage in God's plan of the ages. Uh, then, with, because of disbelief and unbelief, God cut them off and shifted His focus to the present church age, which was a mystery, something previously unknown until God revealed it in the New Testament, as Ephesians chapter three says. But someday. Uh, you know, Israel is going to once again occupy the place, uh, uh, the central place of God's blessing, uh, the conduit of his blessing through all the earth. So the olive tree, just think of it as the place of God's blessing, the center stage. And uh, currently the church has been grafted into that blessing, uh, but in the future, Israel will be grafted back in uh, again. Uh, so the trip, the uh, tri uh, tribulation saints that are mentioned in Revelation seven have nothing to do uh, with the grafting into the olive tree. Those are just the believers that get saved after the rapture and are uh, crying out for vengeance in the, the tribulation period. Um, and the tribulation <clears throat> saints are also, as this person asks, they're not members of the church. Remember, the church is a unique body of Jew and Gentile indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit and in Christ positionally that takes place from the 
day of Pentecost and Acts 2 up until the rapture. After the rapture, the church is in heaven, uh, experiencing the marriage of the Lamb and the Bema Judgment. <clears throat> I'm going to be talking more about the Bema Judgment and the Doctrine of Rewards this coming Sunday in our ongoing series through Nehemiah. We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 11, and I'm going to be preaching a message uh, entitled, Are You Willing to Be Unknown? And, and we'll be touching on rewards. Uh, but no, tribulation saints are not part of the church. It's not part of the grafting in uh, of Israel. That will not happen again until Christ uh, comes back. So I hope that helps clarify uh, the times of the Gentiles. It just means the time when uh, when Gentiles are in control in the Holy Land, and 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 uh, you know, right now the church is center stage. At, after the rapture of the church, the Antichrist and his pagan system, the Babylonian system, uh, will be you know center stage. But someday Christ will come back, and that's when the fullness of the Gentiles will. I have come in. Then there's a question here about the 24 elders. I believe the 24 elders in Revelation, first mentioned in Revelation 4, are represent the church. There are differences of opinion on that, so we want to be gracious. Uh, you know, uh, I certainly could be wrong, but all the evidence seems to point towards the church. They're the only ones who, at that point, have received their rewards and are in heaven. And so, um, you know, I think it's it's clear that the, it represents uh, the church. It can't be angels uh, because the angels don't, you know, get redeemed. Uh, and uh, so, and then here's a question about the millennial kingdom, uh, about David. Um, by the way, I prefer to call it the millennium or the millennial phase of the kingdom rather than the millennial kingdom because that seems to imply that the kingdom is only a thousand years, but we know from Scripture that the kingdom is eternal. The moment Christ takes the throne, the kingdom will continue perpetually. The first 1,000 years of it are on the old earth, that's that's the millennial phase, and then it continues after the old heaven and earth are destroyed in all uh, for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. But in any event, in, during the millennium, uh, the question is, what about David? Some things, some people think David will reign on the throne. I do believe he will reign on a throne. He'll be co-reigning with Christ. I don't think he's reigning instead of Christ. I think Christ obviously literally will reign in fulfillment, fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But I do believe there'll be a special place uh, for David uh, in the kingdom on a throne. Um, here's a great question about the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Can you explain how the Ezekiel 38 battle could be modern day as it states the armies are on horses and using swords and shields. Well, this is this is a great opportunity to kind of explain how we handle Bible prophecy. You know, we want to use the plain sense because it makes normal sense. We want to to not try to allegorize the text unless the text itself tells us it's using something symbolic. So I take it that this is describing a battle that will include doesn't have to be exclusively. The text doesn't say it's only horses and chariots, but I do believe it will include horses and chariots. And when this person asks, uh, how could that be modern day? Well, remember, the Battle of Gog and Magog prophecy you know, was written 500 years before Christ and presumably could have come true any time after that. So we live in the modern day, and I think what they're asking is, how could how could this prophecy now be fulfilled, given the description of horses and chariots? And and I and I'm reading between the lines here, but perhaps they're wondering if maybe this prophecy was somehow fulfilled in ancient times. But uh, no, not at all. I think it's definitely future. That seems to be clear enough from the context. It in the flow of thought in Ezekiel, it comes in the context of after the new covenant is in full effect in chapter 36 and chapter 37 is the dry bones when Israel is regathered into the land and then you have 
you know, all, all the uh, Gog and Magog battle, and then you have the new, the temple, the new temple in Ezekiel forty to forty eight. So clearly, you know, this is all end times uh, in in context. And so, how could this be true? Well, any number of scenarios could play out. Uh, by that time this battle happens, we could have had some kind of an EMP or, uh, you know, a CME, a coronal mass ejection. Uh, anything could have happened that kind of throws us back into the Dark Ages, so to speak, so that the weapons of warfare are a little bit more rudimentary than they are today. Uh, secondly, it could be that they're used simultaneously. That region of the world that's described there is actually in some cases easier to traverse with horses than it is modern vehicles. Um, so, uh, you know, who's to say there could certainly be, uh, you know, air weapons and uh, aircraft and plane, military planes and things being used simultaneous with horses and chariots. Even to this day, there are times when the U.S. will use horses as part of a uh, military activity and so forth, as well as other countries. So I don't see any inconsistency there at all. I let the text speak where it speaks, and, and uh, I do not take it as uh, symbolic. Uh, here is another question about the seven-year tribulation. They say, I've got a friend who says that seven years is never mentioned in the Bible. Well, that's simply uh, provably false. Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy speaks of 70 Shabuas. A Shabua in Hebrew is a seven-year period in context. And so the 70th Shabua is the 70th seven-year period also known as the tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble or the great day of the Lord's wrath. So the seven-year tribulation is very clearly taught in Scripture. We also see it referenced in terms of the Hebrew calendar as 1260 days for three and a half years, and then another 1260 days for three and a half years. It's also mentioned as a time, times, and half a time, meaning a year, two years, and half a year, which is three and a half years for the first half. So yeah, seven is all over the end times, you know, prophecies of Scripture. It, there's no question that the tribulation period uh, will be uh, seven years. So that person just needs to, you know, get into the Word of God and, and study it more closely. Um, this is a person who says, um, I'm reading Spirit of the Antichrist. It uh, doesn't say which one, volume one or two, but um, on a certain page, you mentioned that once a person believes in Jesus, uh, they can return to their life before accepting Jesus and still go to heaven. Well, this is the biblical doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. When you trust in Jesus Christ at that moment, you receive eternal life. By definition, eternal life can never be lost, or it was never eternal to begin with. The moment you trust Christ, <clears throat> your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you are adopted into the family of God. Name is written, you know, you're, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and so forth. So um, while, as we mentioned earlier, the uh, normal thing for a new believer is to live out the, the, the new nature, to, to produce fruit of the Spirit. Now, that's not guaranteed. You can quench the Spirit. The Bible tells us that clearly. You can grieve the Spirit. You can resist the Spirit. You cannot walk in the Spirit. All of those things are straight out of Scripture. So a believer who is quenching the Spirit or grieving the Spirit is going to look very much like an unbeliever. And uh, that's not normal. That's not natural. There are serious consequences for sin. Sin is awful. It will not serve you well. But sin can never undo what Jesus promised. Um, if if sin could undo what Jesus promised, then Jesus didn't need to go to the cross. If our eternal destiny is contingent upon how much we sin, 
or how bad our sins are, then that's basically self-salvation. We've got to be good. We've got to stop sinning. (laughs) And uh, that's what a lot of people believe, that if you go too far, well, you're not really going to heaven. God will take it away. Well, fortunately, uh, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners saved by grace. And, you know, your petty little sins of jealousy or, you know, discontentment or covetousness or anger or lust— those things that maybe aren't very visible to others, they're just as offensive to a holy God as well. And so those who sit here and say, well, if a person commits murder or a person commits homosexuality, they can't possibly be saved, they're evidencing a a really ugly, incipient pride within their own hearts, because essentially what they're saying is that I can continue to sin in quote-unquote little ways, and God's okay with that, and I'll still go to heaven. But if you commit any of the so-called biggies, well, you're definitely not a Christian. I mean, think about the lunacy of that. That's just so prideful. The fact is, all sin is offensive to a holy God, but all sin is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ and covered by the righteousness of Christ when we believe the gospel. So if you've trusted in Christ, that issue is settled. Stop trying to prove your salvation to God. Just let that issue go. You're a child of God. Now live like it. Live like it. So uh, yes, I stand firmly behind the doctrine of eternal security. It's what the Bible teaches. And those who think you can lose salvation, uh, well, you know, I pray for you because you are, you're missing out on the joy of salvation by spending your life on earth trying to prove something that doesn't need to be proven. Uh, you know, Jesus says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish, John 10, 28. And he meant it. He didn't mean you shall never perish so long as you don't do any big sins or you don't do this or do that. Uh, he said, you shall never perish. So keep following Jesus, keep living out the fruit of the spirit keep you know you know staying in the word of god and and uh, producing the fruit that is intended as a new child of christ but uh, don't uh, don't think that somehow you have to do that or you'll never get into heaven we don't get to heaven based on our works uh, here's a question about uh, the tree of life why is the tree of life needed in new jerusalem i talked about this i think on my last q and a it's it's not needed we don't need the tree of life to have eternal life but it, it's kind of like you know, uh, a, a, a big fruit bowl, you know, it's there you for you to enjoy, and, and but you don't have to, to eat it. Uh, it's just a symbol, as I've talked about previously, of the perpetual nature of eternal life. Uh, great question here from current events about this uh, peace deal that's being brokered. It's really more of a geographic deal with Saudi Arabia and uh, so forth to kind of give the Arabs uh uh, make them part of Jordan, part of the, the West Bank there, I think it is. Um, uh, could that be, the question is, prophetically significant? Absolutely it could be. Anytime you start seeing talk of treaties that involve realignment uh, related to Israel, uh, that should get your attention. It doesn't mean it is the uh, a burgeoning treaty that's talked about in Daniel 9.27, but it certainly uh, could be prophetically significant. Uh, so yeah, great question there. Um, here's several questions. I'm going to try to get to all of them in this one email because they were excellent uh, questions. Uh, let me scroll down here to where uh, they were. First of all, I know you say the governments control much of the weather, but Scripture says that God controls the weather. Um, so how much do governments really control the weather? Uh, is this government control part of the end times birth pains? Well, there's several questions kind of packed into that first one there. 
First of all, yeah, there's no question that governments can control the weather. Not only governments, but private industry, uh, rogue elements within a government. Uh, yeah, this has been going on for decades. I've talked about it extensively in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, in the chapter on geoengineering. Uh, I talk about examples coming out of the Vietnam War back in the 50s and even earlier than that, different government programs where they were attempting to manipulate the weather. Uh other countries such as China even have a weather modification office the same way we might have, you know, Department of Homeland Security or you know, the Social Security office or something like that. They have a weather modification office. We haven't crystallized it into a formal official government agency, but there's no question that at the military level, for sure, they are able to manipulate the weather in any number of ways through HARP, uh, through spraying nanoparticulates, uh, you know, what's called uh, uh, solar radiation management, SRM. Uh, so, yeah, you check the resources at the back of my first book there on that subject, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, and you can see all kinds of uh, evidence, patents that have been listed, uh, a private industry that has government contracts, uh, no question. But that does not mean that God doesn't ultimately control the weather. I mean, there are a lot of evil people doing evil things, and that doesn't contravene God's sovereignty. As to why God allows it, who who's to say? I mean, that's the age-old tension between sovereignty and free will. I don't have the mind of God, as we read about in uh, Romans chapter 11, uh, where, where he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That's verse 33, I think. In other words, we don't claim to reconcile God's sovereignty with man's free will. The Bible teaches both. We just accept them. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's one of the questions we can ask God when we get there is, how, why did you allow evil to go on for so long? But remember, it's not God that's sanctioning the evil. This is a question I had earlier or that we haven't gotten to yet, but uh, we're going to get to. So I'll go ahead and answer it now. The question about all the evil in the world, how can God sanction this? God's not sanctioning it at all. The world as it exists today is not the world God created. God created the world perfectly, and mankind in His image. We messed it up, and we had free will. I mean, God didn't create a race of, or, or a group of automatons or robots that had no choice. We had free choice, and we chose to rebel, and we choose to sin. But someday God's going to make it all right. He's going to clean up the world. He's going to pour out His wrath on all of the wickedness of the world, and uh, it will be made right. So, God's not sanctioning it. He is allowing it for reasons known only to him. We don't claim to have the answer to that. Uh, we we know the what. We don't always know the why. And uh, so, yeah, but there's no question that that governments as well as other uh, private industries and rogue elements uh, and Luciferians within this world can control uh, the weather. And anybody who denies that is just embarrassing themselves, honestly, because it's so clear. I mean, I, there are so many websites you can go to that even explain how they're doing it. There's patents that have been registered. It, we see it happening. Just look up and you'll see the elephant in the sky. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Um, this is a question from the same uh, emailer about Second Chronicles 7.14. And how do we know what passages are meant for Israel and what are meant for the church? Well, it's pretty clear from context, you know, all of the passages in the Old Testament are meant for Israel, or at least they're not meant for the church because the church didn't exist then. Second Chronicles 7.14 is one that they mention here. That's pretty clear because it says, if my people who are called by my name, that's definitely Israel. And the same thing with Jeremiah 29.11, Jeremiah 33.3, uh, Daniel you know, 9.27. It's all about Israel. And uh, so context determines meaning. Uh, now, even though a specific passage might have direct 
uh, you know, uh, reference to Israel, it doesn't mean we can't learn something about God and his timeless truths for Scripture. So, for example, we know that God tells Israel that they that God will bless them and heal their land if they will return to him. Well, that just shows that God is in the land healing business, and we see this again and again throughout Israel's history. And so it follows that uh, any nation, not just Israel, but any nation that turns to God will experience God's blessings. And we actually see that in a uh, wisdom portion of Scripture that is universal in its its scope uh, in, in Proverbs when it says, um, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach uh, to any nation. I think, let me find that verse, because I want to make sure I get the right uh, reference. Uh, let's see. Uh, righteousness. Okay. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any nation. So that's uh, Proverbs 14.34. Yeah, there you go. So uh, sometimes these verses pop into my mind, and I, I think, am I conflating something? Is it, or, you know, but yeah, so that's how you know. Context determines meaning, uh, and that's the way I would answer that question about 2 Chronicles 7.14. Next question is, are the elect always used to refer to the nation of Israel, or can it refer to us as Christians? Yeah, absolutely it can. depends on the context. In Ephesians 1, I think it's referring to all believers. I think in Matthew 24, it's referring to Israel, um, as, as well as uh, uh, all believers, depending on which passage you're looking at there, uh, uses it twice. Um so I think it depends on the context. Elect just means chosen. Israel is God's chosen nation, but God also chooses us. And so that's the, the whole election free will thing. The Bible definitely teaches election, but it definitely teaches free will. And from our human perspective, those things seem contradictory, but they're not. We we accept them both because the Bible teaches them both. Uh, here's another question about the fig tree. Does the fig tree refer to the nation of Israel? Well, we talked about that earlier in my answer to the to a different question about the Olivet Discourse. Uh, unfortunately, many, even otherwise pretty solid Bible scholars, have, have misunderstood the reference to the fig tree. Jesus specifically says in Matthew 24, 32, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And so also when you see all these signs, you know that my coming is near. So the fig tree is not Israel. The fig tree is just a, an analogy, a figure of speech to make the point. And so, unfortunately, a lot of people thought when Israel became a nation in 1948, that was the fig tree budding, and therefore they misunderstood the reference to the generation, and they thought within 40 years we'd all be raptured. And that just comes from a misunderstanding of Scripture. The fig tree is not Israel in this context. The fig tree is simply an illustration that when you see the signs that I've just given, you know that my return is near in the same way that when a fig tree starts to bud, you know that summer uh, is near. Also, same thing with their question about oil. Does oil always represent the Holy Spirit? No. Unless the text tells us what it means, we can't assign meaning arbitrarily. That's that's called allegorical uh, interpretation, where you come up with something in your mind and you impose it on the text. If the text tells us oil represents the Holy Spirit, it does. Otherwise, it doesn't. Uh, what can you tell us about the Septuagint? Is that important to know? So the Septuagint, you'll often, often see it written LXX, the Roman numeral 70, because there were 70 scholars that translated it. Uh, it, it was translated in 285 BC, if memory serves, and it was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So you got the Hebrew scriptures, then you got the Greek New Testament, 
the Old Testament also includes uh, limited portions in Aramaic that were written, uh, you know, during the Babylonian exile. But uh, by and large, you've got the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament. Uh, once, you know, uh, Greek became the common language of the people during the Roman Empire, it became necessary to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so that people growing up in that culture could read it. And that is the Septuagint. So it's helpful. It's, uh, you know, it's a translation. So like any translation, it's it's going to have uh, mistakes. God didn't divinely inspire the Septuagint specifically. He divinely inspired the writers of Scripture when the quill hit the sheepskin and they began writing their, uh, you know, under the inspiration of the Spirit. So the 66 books of the Bible today, 39 in the Old 27 in the new are inspired. Anything else that's translated might have typographical errors. It might have scribal errors. It might have poorly worded translations in a certain you know, language. Uh, and the Septuagint is a very helpful translation. It kind of gives us a sense of kind of how that generation, 300 years before Christ, understood certain Old Testament passages, because you can tell by the way they translated it. Uh, but uh, but yeah, helpful to helpful to understand. Here's the question. Why is Jesus called the Word? Well, you need to understand <clears throat> the, that there are two, two words, if you will, in uh, Scripture. Jesus is the incarnate living Word, and uh, Scripture is the infallible living Word. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So Jesus is the Word, um, and uh, and we also have the written Word of God, which is the Bible, as we just mentioned, uh, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who carried along 40 human authors over a period of about 1,500 years in three different original languages to give us the sum total of what God wants us to know about Him. The Bible, as I've often said, is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. So the Word of God is both the in, in the uh, 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 incarnate living Jesus who became flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 says, uh, but it's also the living, infallible, uh, inerrant, written Word, as Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is quick and powerful, that is, living and active. Uh, here's a question about universalism. Uh, a friend of mine visited church this past Sunday, they had a guest speaker, and this person, this guest speaker said, the whole world has to be reached with the gospel message. Um, is that possible? Uh, so I'm reading between the lines here on their question, because they also talk about how God's general revelation, according to Romans 1, is made known to everybody. So the answer is yes. Ultimately, Jesus promised in Matthew 24, 14, that the whole world uh, would hear the gospel prior to his uh, return, Matthew 24, 14. And I believe that's the purpose of the 144,000 during the tribulation, and ultimately that one angel in, I think it's Revelation 14, uh, that goes the, and preaches the gospel in the waning hours and days of the tribulation, so that by the time Christ comes back, every human being on earth by that time will have heard the gospel. Um, and indeed, that is the Great Commission. In the present age, we are supposed to preach the gospel to the whole world. That doesn't mean we will succeed, though. We might, if the Lord doesn't come back for a while. It might be that we take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world, but the only guarantee in Scripture is that the gospel will be heard by everyone on earth prior to the second coming. 
as far as general revelation mentioned in Romans 1, general revelation is not sufficient to bring someone eternal life. That general revelation simply tells us that there's a God, and everybody on planet Earth knows there's a God, whether they deny it or not, and they know there's a God. That's what the Bible tells us. Their conscience bears witness. The very uh, creation of God declares his presence. Uh, and if they respond to that general revelation, acknowledging God, then he will make sure to send them special revelation, namely the gospel, so that they can be saved. But if all someone ever sees is general revelation and they don't cry out for more, then they'll, they, they can't be saved simply by knowing there's a God. So hopefully that helps with that one. Here's a question about the Luciferians. This person says, I, they hear me reference the Luciferians but what qualifies someone as a Luciferian? So Luciferian is both a biblical term and a common term in their language. They call themselves Luciferians because they believe Lucifer is God. They worship him the way you and I worship Almighty God. And of course, it comes from Isaiah uh, 14, and uh, and it's a reference that has come to refer to Satan himself. So Lucifer is Satan. And so they call themselves Luciferians, meaning they worship Satan. That's the simplest answer. Uh, I use the term, uh, and I discuss this very in great detail in the opening chapters of Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1. I lay the foundation for what is a Luciferian conspiracy, what is the Luciferian conspiracy. I diagram it out. I chart it out. Um, so you've got different levels. At the top tier, you've got the people that actually worship Satan and, and pray to him and, and talk to him and get their marching orders from him and drink blood and sacrifice children. These are the evilest of the of the evil. <laughs> and then you've got beneath them, their minions that are kind of serving at their behest, and they understand it's a satanic conspiracy that they're serving at the behest of Satan, but they might not be the ones in charge. And then the further down the chain you go, uh, the more need-to-know basis it is. So there are a lot of people that are part of the Luciferian conspiracy and may not even realize that Satan's the one in charge in, in this scheme. Uh, they are just, you know, doing it for their own personal means, wealth, power, sex, whatever their evil uh, agenda might be. And they may not connect the dots all the way to the top to realize that Satan's the one pulling the strings. So that's a quick primer there on the Luciferian conspiracy. But I encourage you to check out uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, for a much more detailed overview of it. Um, let's see, this person is asking about a particular passage. Let me bring it up, Romans 5, 13. Um, relationship between law and sin. So sin came into existence by one man. Scripture makes that clear in Romans 5, 12. Uh, sin is breaking, uh, falling short of God's glory, hamartia, missing the mark is more of a, a wooden translation. So anything that's, that's uh, contrary to God's will and God's way is sin. Uh, the law came along, obviously, on Mount Sinai with Moses, and the law uh, is not when sin came into being, but as Paul would say, I think it's in Romans 7, uh, you know, the law empowered sin. It, it highlighted sin, if you will. Now you've got a code that makes it clear. If you cross this line, that's sin. And so, um, you know, sin was certainly, as this person says, in the world before the law was given. Um and, uh, you know, sin is, according to Romans 5, as, as he goes on to talk about, you know, is imputed through the first Adam, through the first Adam, that's 
you know, sin is imputed, and through Christ, righteousness is imputed. So, for example, Romans 5.18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, that's Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification for life. So, no, I don't think that he's, Paul is saying here, uh, uh, you know, sin was not imputed, uh, you know, in the sense of being being found guilty. I'm just, I think he's just saying that uh, the law energizes sin. It, it highlights sin. Um, and uh, so that would be my take on that. That's not a very good answer. I just don't have the time to kind of dive into it in great detail word by word. But uh, I, I would encourage you to check out, uh, you know, any good commentary like Bible knowledge commentary, put out by Dallas Seminary will kind of break down that. Romans 5 is a fascinating chapter. It's it, it just, it, it's the first Adam, the second Adam, and explains the contrast between works and grace, and that grace is a free gift, uh, and so forth. So, sorry, I, I don't have time to give it into more detail for that. I know that's probably not what, totally what you were looking for on that question. Um, when we get to heaven, will we have full knowledge of those we expected to be there and are not? Wow. Uh, you know, all I can say is what the scripture says. We're going to, there's not going to be any sorrow in heaven. Uh, there will be a moment of regret at the beam of judgment, uh, but that'll be instantaneous, I believe. But once we enter heaven, no sorrow. So, uh, you know, to whatever extent we recognize that some people are not there, I don't think it's going to bring uh, bring sorrow to us in heaven, but it ought to bring sorrow to us now. And that's why there's an urgency to the gospel. And if you're listening to this program and you've never trusted in, in Christ, boy, you need to do that now. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for you personally. Should have been you on that cross, but he took your place. That's what the substitutionary atonement is all about. He died in your place on the cross. He paid a debt he didn't owe because you owed a debt you could never pay. And then he defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose from the dead three days later. And now he and he alone can offer you the free gift of eternal life if you'll trust him and him alone for it. Um, this is a question about 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, and how the dead in Christ will rise first at the rapture. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the clouds. So, uh, you know, they're just kind of clarifying, you know, who are the, the dead in Christ. So remember, when a believer today dies, he or she goes immediately to be in the presence of heaven. You never lose consciousness. There's no such thing as soul sleep that some people try to talk about. Uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5. Our physical body, however, goes to the grave or goes wherever it goes, if it's burned up or cremated or lost at sea. So our physical atoms that constitute our physicality, the material portion of man, stays behind. But we, the real us, the immaterial part of us, the soul, goes to heaven if you know the Lord. Well, at the rapture, uh, those who are already in heaven are coming back with Christ those who are alive on earth, still in our physical bodies, we are raptured, caught up to meet them in the clouds. But the bodies of those who have already died uh, and have been in heaven all this time, those physical bodies will be resurrected so that the mortal puts on immortality, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the corruptible puts on incorruption and so forth. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So that's the, who the dead in Christ are. Those are the believers who've already died, and it's their physical bodies that will rise first. And then all of us, those that have already been in heaven and those of us that are on earth, will meet, meet up together uh, in the clouds. A great question here from a pragmatic standpoint about illegal immigrants and all that's going on in the news with that as it relates to the Good Samaritan story that Jesus told. 
And should Christian, what, what should Christians do when someone comes to their home and asks for a place to stay or asks for food? Well, I think that's going to depend on the context. Uh, as this person said in their very question, what if a flash mob attacks your home? Well, our duty is to is to protect the sanctity of life and protect our own life and the life of our family and those who God has put under our stewardship. And so if someone comes threatening my family, threatening to kill us, if we don't give them food, then I'm going to defend myself. And that's quite clear in scripture. Jesus even told the disciples to make sure they sold their knapsack and bought a sword because they might have to defend themselves sometimes. And Old Testament is very clear that we have the right to defend ourselves uh, and, uh, and, and the New Testament alike. So I think it depends on the context. If if you can, if you're able, and you and it's not going to hurt your family, if you can be helpful and generous and gracious to those in need, you ought to do it. And the Spirit of God will will guide you in that situation. Uh, we've all had situations where we've come across someone in need, and and we felt I don't know if I should help them or not. I'm afraid they're just going to take the money and use it for drugs. And the Spirit of God says, Nah, don't. Don't worry about it. And other times we just feel a real burden to help somebody. And you ought to listen to that still small voice and do what the Spirit tells you. And I think when the time comes, if there's civil unrest and marauding mobs, uh, we'll know the best way to handle it. But don't be afraid to defend your to defend your family. Okay. Um, here's this question that I referenced, I think, a bit ago about the Bema judgment. Um you know, how are we to understand that Christians will be ashamed? Remember, 1 John 2, 28 says, Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we will be confident and not ashamed before him at his coming. In other words, um, abide means meno. It means to stay close to, remain in close fellowship with. We want to stay close to Jesus as believers. We don't want to be found faithless. We don't want to be found sinning or rebelling or backsliding. We want to be found vibrantly serving him when that trumpet sounds. And 1 John 2.28 clearly says that if in that instant, there will be a moment of regret and shame. And I think that's true for all believers. What form that takes at the beam of judgment, it's hard to say. The Bible is silent on that. It just says we must all appear before that bema to be rewarded. It's not a judgment to see. Uh, by the way, I keep saying bema. In case you're not aware, bema, it's actually bema in Greek with an uh, eta, not an epsilon. But anyway, bema just means uh, judgment seat. And Paul likens the first century common judgment seat in the, the Roman world down in the Agora, the, the the town square, if you will, where magistrates would sit on a raised platform and pass judgment on certain disputes that were brought before them, make rulings, if you will. He says, well, similarly, Christ someday for all believers is going to be sitting on a judgment seat of sorts, and he's going to reward you for your faithfulness. And Luke 19, 11 to 30 is a great passage here. I think 11 to 26, I think it might be. Anyway, Luke 19, 11. And he's going to reward us for how faithful we've been. And uh, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I think in that moment, again, we don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, it's going to happen outside of time, space, and matter in the heavens while all hell is breaking loose on earth during the tribulation. And it could be instantaneous. It could last the whole seven years. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know from Scripture that there will be for some a moment of regret when you wish you had done more. But there's no punishment for sure. This person goes on to ask about how someone else they heard teaching was talking about how it's going to be, you know, frightening and they might actually, you know, be punished and have punitive consequences for things they haven't. No, no. The judgment seat of Christ is not about punitive damages. It's only about reward or loss of reward. Uh, it's nothing to fear. It's a motivation. And, uh, you know, heaven is a place with no sadness, sorrow, remorse, regret, shame, 
But in that moment, as we pass from this earth into the next, as we after the raptures, when the beam of judgment will happen, I think there will be a moment when we all wish we had done more uh, for the Lord. Um, this is a question about the calendar before the birth of Christ and the Gregorian calendar. How did the ancients from past times record the year? I think they did it through the sun and the moon and the stars, and they were able to actually reckon time uh, pretty clearly and, and accurately. Uh, and then over time, the way we record that uh, has changed, of course, but uh, time marches on. Uh, here's a question about the unbelieving spouses uh, there. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 7. They don't actually mention the chapter, but I think that's where they're talking about, uh, where it talks about, let me see if I can call it up real quick, but it talks about how the unbelieving uh, spouse is sanctified or sanctifies the, or is sanctified by the believing spouse. Um, let's see. Um, can't put my finger on it quickly enough here without a, awkward pause here on the on the uh podcast but essentially uh, what i've taught there is that you know the bible is saying that in some cases a christian spouse by their witness and their testimony can help lead a an unbelieving spouse uh, to christ doesn't mean it's guaranteed to happen but you know you should not divorce your unbelieving spouse uh simply because they're unbelievers god might use you to lead them to faith in christ is the idea there and then uh, I think that was the last question because I already talked about Matthew 24, 34. So there you go. Hopefully some of that was helpful or intriguing. I have a suspicion that it probably in some cases uh, uh, engendered more questions uh, uh, than uh, solutions, but uh, always enjoy dialoguing with you about the Word of God and uh, talking about these things. Um, I'm going to be uh, a little bit slower in producing these Q&As over the next few weeks. We are heavy, heavy travel season right now, especially with the new book. We're doing interviews. I'm going to be on Jan Markell uh, first weekend in October. I've got other interviews that are going to be airing with Prophecy Watchers. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we've got conferences coming up. October, November, December. So check out our events tab at notbyworks.org, and you can kind of pray for us as we travel. Uh, or if you're in any of those areas, we'd love to have you come join us, come by the, the booth and tell us hello in the exhibit areas. Uh, but uh, I'm going to continue to try to do these Q&As, but I can't guarantee it'll be one a week. It's just as I have opportunity, I'll uh, you know get out my Bible and uh, fire up the microphone and try to answer some of these questions. And as always, don't assume that I'm the definitive ruling on the matter. I'm just one student of Scripture trying to make sense of what God's Word says and, and apply it to some of these questions. I certainly uh, am not uh, infallible. So study the Word of God for yourselves. Check it out. Um, you may you know, come to a different conclusion than I have on some of these uh, matters. Uh, but uh, in the, in the meantime, remember to check out spiritofthefalseprophet.org, spiritofthefalseprophet.org for info on the new book. As I mentioned, those books will begin shipping next week, as promised. We've said all along they would ship September 25th, and uh, we're right on schedule for that. So pray for us as we have a whole backlog of early orders that have come in over the last two or three weeks. And I know you're eagerly awaiting the, the book. I hope you enjoy it. hope it's meaningful and helps clarify some of the things that are happening in this rise of the global technocracy. Have a great uh, rest of the week. Don't forget, we got Shane on tomorrow with the hidden dangers of AI, and uh, we will be live streaming our service on Sunday, or at least my message uh, from Nehemiah at Plum Creek Chapel this Sunday at 10 o'clock Mountain Time. So God bless you, everyone. We'll see you again next time.